Welcome to PALS Talks Literacy, a podcast created for Project Adult Literacy Society. In this podcast, we talk about literacy in all of its forms and the impact it has on people's lives. Today we're talking with Lori, the Métis and Indigenous Liaison with the Community Learning Network. Today we're going to learn about kinship, raising others' voices, and shining the light on the good in the world. I'm Laurie St. Cyr, Métis and Indigenous Liaison with the Community Learning Network. I'm Métis. I am from Peabine Métis Settlement, uh, born and raised here in my community. I've been on the land where I am now. I find myself today for the last 23 years. My children grew here and my grandchildren now come to visit here. So this is a very special place to me. Part of being the Métis and Indigenous Liaison and a community member in my community, I'm a mother, I'm a cookum, I'm a community helper. And I'm also a land guardian, and I'm a knowledge holder and sharer for the things that I do and the work that I do with the Community Adult Learning Program and all the health programs. Part of my work is to share knowledge of Indigenous ways of knowing and being, how to connect Indigenous people, organizations with non-Indigenous people and organizations to build bridges, to help build relationships, and to really just talk about what it is to be Indigenous and to be a modern Indigenous person in today's world uh, and, and in today's as, as the work that we do in literacy and what that looks like. For those who don't actually know what the kelp world is, do you want to talk a little bit about adult literacy and the importance of it that you see? Absolutely. So the supports that I provide specifically to the kelp world I work with anyone that works within the, with the KELP grant, so the Community Adult Learning Program grant. And so anyone that holds or in organizations that hold the, the KELP grant provides supports, coaching, mentoring, and tutoring to low literacy learners. And low literacy can mean a number of things. It's not necessarily reading and writing. It could be low literacy in digital skills, low liter- literacy in life skills, uh, just the things that would help us be help us navigate the world in a a way that's going to be productive for us as as human beings. It may be someone that would go to a kelp organization and they want a little help in learning a little bit more about their computer, or they need a little help with their reading. They're struggling with some math skills. So all that part is part of literacy, but there's also for myself as an Indigenous person, I look at oral literacy a lot and looking at what kind of ways that we do, I do teachings, even just myself. Teachings can come from anywhere. Literacy can be anything, whatever that looks like to that individual person. I think it's important to remember. I've been very blessed and very lucky to be able to go and do some learning with Indigenous elders and Indigenous knowledge keepers. And I have to say that some of the ways that they teach using that oral tradition is so magical and so special with the story being told and then the underlying message that comes with those stories is just to me being non-indigenous is a fascinating way to learn but it's also so special and so impacting because you remember stories i feel like we as people remember stories really well so one of the things i was hoping that we could talk about today is how that oral tradition is passed down, but also how we share that between cultures. Absolutely. So for me, I'll just share an example of something that just happened over the weekend. As soon as my day is done, 4.30 hits, I'm outside. As long as the weather's nice, (laughs) rain, winter, summer, spring, it doesn't matter. As long as I can dress for it and I can be out there, I will be out there. So I'm very connected to the land. I'm very connected to the land that I live on, work on, play on. Uh, So my daughter was home during the weekend and she was helping me plant trees. So there's a space in my yard that I know is it's not a good place to plant trees, but I wanted my trees there. So we're digging in in the ground and we're pulling up this clay soil, this hard, hard clay soil. And we're looking at it. She's like, oh, mom, this soil's so hard. And I said, well, you know what? We need to soften the soil so we can dig, dig in this ground. And it just got me to thinking about, if you think about my story and you think about a literacy learner, as I tell my story, so this was my lesson with my daughter. It wasn't necessarily about literacy, but we can transform that into a literacy le- literacy lesson. Uh, so we're digging in the ground and I said to her, I said, you know what Musham would do? So Musham is her grandfather, my grandfather. But Musham would tell, would tell us, if the ground is hard, then we add water to that ground to soften it up. 
So we need to have something to help it help it be easier for us to understand. So we're going to coax it. We're going to have a relationship with this ground now. We need to soften it. We need to be able to have it. So it's going to be a good place to grow. So these plants could grow. These trees can grow. So we started watering this ground and digging it up. And it became easier to dig as that clay got softer. So we removed the clay. And then we put this new dirt. But we also took some of the clay with it. And we put that new dirt in with that, that soil. So that this tree can grow in this. This is the land it's going to grow in. So we, we, have, we have adult learners or literacy learners that are coming into this place, a land, a job, a community. Maybe it's a new place for them. Maybe this is somewhere they live. It's always been hard for them to live there. It's hard to grow. They can't grow. They need help growing. So we're softening this land. We're building a relationship with this land. We're looking at the land. We're talking to the land. We're examining it. What does this land need? What does this tree need that we're going to put in this land for it to grow, to prosper, and to be what we what we need from it it was a berry bush so we want these beautiful berries to grow right so we really want to make sure that this land is going to this land that we're putting this bush in is going to be kind to it so even as a literacy learner you're building up you're looking you're digging deep what are they coming from what do they have maybe they have traumas we don't know we don't know until we talk to them we build that relationship then we see what's happening okay so we know that there's clay here what is clay clay can also be used it's useful you could take that clay, you could harvest it in different ways. So then we took that clay and we're actually going to make some bowls out of it. So we're taking those things that were maybe in the ground that we can use that wasn't successful for growing this plant, but we made that, that area good for it. We made it safe for it. We take care of it. We water it. I talk to it. I talk to all my trees or plants and I plant them. I think that's so important. I agree. Um, absolutely. But it really is. And now that tree is doing beautifully, it seems to be taking well to where it's planted. And we'll water and nurture it and take it care, take it right through to the fall. And then again, we'll keep doing that. But again, with learners and with people, we have to look at the ways that we have to look at where they are. What's yeah. around them? What do they already have? What can we take out? Even though that clay, clay wasn't good for the soil right there in that moment, we could take it and use it for something else. And it's going to become something useful. And I think people come with all kinds of things good things, hard things. And it's just looking at those and how do we help that person or how do we help that tree grow in a good way? And I think that's all part of relationship building. So when we think of people, we have to think about how the relationship is, how we can help them and build that trust. Once we have that trust, then we can start working on literacy. But only then can we start working on literacy because relationship is always the most important, especially working with adult learners and Indigenous learners. You have to remember that Indigenous people, education was used against Indigenous peoples, what was weaponized against Indigenous people for many, many years. My own grandparents were both residential school survivors. My musha, my grandfather, used to talk often about uh, what that was like to be a residential school survivor, about running away. But he always made it very important. My koko and musha, my grandparents, on my mom's side, they had 10 children. Uh, six of them were girls, four boys. He always, they always told the girls, even though they were survivors of residential school, the importance of education. So all my aunts, all my mom's sisters, all got formally educated because it's so important to my grandparents that they were educated so that they could live in the world that was around us. Wow. And the colonized world. Yeah, so it, it's, yeah. yeah, thank you. Hi, hi. Hi, <laughs> wow. I just love how you took your story about the tree and just made that so, this is what I'm saying. You just make it so relatable and true to exactly what we're talking about. And I think that that is a gift in how Indigenous stories work because it isn't one story that only works in this way, but there are mm -hmm. stories that can be used in many different ways and many different understandings come out of them. One of the elders that I listened to told us once that you hear what you need to hear when you get that story. And I first heard it, I was like, I don't get what that means, but it's very true because I have had now the opportunity to listen to the same stories. They're told in maybe a different way or a little bit different emphasis because of what we're talking about. But what I need to hear from the story. And I think that's what's special about Indigenous story is that 
that story is going to touch a part of you and it's going to build you up, make you better, share something or brighten something or bring something out of you that you didn't necessarily even know was there. Um, and I think that part of learning and that part of storytelling isn't as present it for me in any other type of storytelling that I've had the um, mm -hmm. honor to listen to. I feel that we're so we're formalized. We're so formalized in learning. I think that it doesn't give space to oral learning or to oral stories or to listen to the lessons in a different way. That's how I really see it. And I see as an Indigenous person, as a Métis person, I really have, I've adjusted myself in ways that I can work in the colonial world. Um, but I also bring in my own Indigenous ways of knowing and being in a way that's a good way. But sitting in front of a desk all day, in front of a laptop all day, that, that doesn't do anything for me. It, my brain is working, but my body is not connecting to what I'm learning and my heart isn't connecting to what I'm learning. I need as an Indigenous person, as myself, I'm also very creative in my way. So I need different, different things to, to learn or to understand or to bring understanding when I'm, when I'm learning. The classroom setting doesn't always work. I can adjust to it, absolutely. But there's a lot of people that can't adjust to that. I've always, I've always worked in, in the modernized world. I've also always worked outside of my community, but I've always, always worked in Indigenous communities. I've been very fortunate in the work that I've done. I've always had that opportunity to work with both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people and to, to share and build relationships between them. And that's the work that I continue today that I do within the kelp system. Something that I talk about often when I talk about the kelp system is if you think of a forest, each of these kelps, there's about 89 kelps in Alberta. So if you think about a big forest, the forest or your backyard that you live in, each of these kelps are in that forest. And each of these kelps are their own little bio, little community. That this little community does this thing here in this community, this part of the forest. You go over here to this other part of the forest and they, this kelp is doing something else. But all these kelps are connected because we're all in this one big forest. We're all sharing information. We're all sharing nutrients. We're all sharing things that we need to succeed. So this kelp forest and the people within the forest, these communities that are helping, are assisting and working with low literacy learners or working with learners, we're all growing together to make this forest healthy and strong. And it helps bring up every learner that comes through each of those kelp stores only adds to that forest and it brings it brighter and it brings it more healthier trees and bigger trees and bigger berries and, and all those things, right? I, I really feel that because the kelp system is so well connected that we really are a forest. Um, and as a forest that's healthy, that has healthy animals, healthy trees, we all work together and we all become better together. It's such a communal way of working. As an Indigenous person, I thrive. Uh, I'm very communal in everything that I do, even in my own community. I'm very, very communal. <laughs> so I think it's a great place to be. And you don't necessarily have to be come in and be a teacher because that's not what this is. That's not the work that we do. We're not teachers. I really believe that we give a hand up to people in the work yeah. that we do. We give a hand up so that they can live their life however they see it fit. However, they figured it's a well-lived life. That's up to them what their life looks like, and it's up to them how they feel that it was well-lived. That's not up to me or anybody else to decide what that looks like. And that's the beauty of the kelp system and the beauty of the kelp forest. Anybody could come in that forest, and they're going to come out the other end, only a better and bigger person than they were when they first came in. They'll have more knowledge. They'll have more self-confidence. They'll be able to take those, those barriers away for themselves. Uh, whatever is holding them back, um, the kelp system helps them take those barriers away, helps build up their confidence and their learning. I think it adds to learning. I've been in my role for five years, going on six. I was the first person to hold this title, this job within the kelp system. So quite, uh, quite excited about that. We now have elders that are, are regular, normalized being in our, our centers, elders being at our symposiums, having opening and closing prayers is very normalized now in the work that we do. I think it's creating a culture of all things is what the kelp does. And it's very good about doing that. 
I agree. Like they seem to have a very large balance of all types of literacy, of all types of learning, of all types. Like it's whichever part will help you, you can use. And as you said, make us better, make our berries sweeter, bigger. As you're talking about all of this and saying how connected you are to the land, I was wondering if there was anything about land literacy that you would like to share, because I think that that connection to the land is so important throughout all of my life. I've had, I've had a large land connection just from how I was raised. We were outside all the time. We went camping all the time. It wasn't formalized or it didn't have as many stories in it or teachings, but we were outside and I always feel better if I can go outside. My kids have learned very much that if I'm starting to seem frustrated, we all need to go outside because then everything just gets better when you're outside. That connection to nature is really important. Is there any land literacy you'd like to maybe share with us? I think for me, just sharing that we're all connected through the land. We're all connected to the water. Right now, for example, my son, he's living in Ontario. He's been there for three years now. He loves it because we have, he has family there. So he has, uh, we have extended family there. So he's there. Whenever he gets lonesome, I tell him, go to the water. I said, I'll go to the water here because we'll be connected. All that, we're always connected through water. So water comes, we have water that he's grown and fished and since he was a little boy, just down the road from me. It's a five minute quad ride. So I go to that water and then he goes to whatever water he's at. And then we're connected that way. He's connected to home, knowing that I'm in the water and he's in the water. So his lonesomeness goes away. So no matter what, we're connected. We're always connected and water connects us the most. That's why we have land guardians and that's why we have people that protect the land and the water. It's just remember that if you're, if you're feeling lost, doesn't matter. And even for myself, if I travel, I travel across Alberta for my work. If I'm feeling out of place or displaced, I go find water because I know that water is connected to my home. I know that water is connected to my family. And it's just really bringing in those lessons. I don't know if that's a land lesson, but that's just something that I'd like to share that I wanted to share. (laughs) No, that's, oh, it brings tears to my eyes because it's beautiful. I don't have words. I have (laughs) tears in my eyes. I do not have words. The whole idea of keeping that connection and having a physical thing, like the water Mm -hmm. itself, I can see that as being so helpful as a young person who was away from the family. I lived in Calgary for 20 years and the rest Mm -hmm. of my whole family was in Edmonton and it's only three hours, but there's definitely times where I, I felt lonely and I needed to have that connection and what a beautiful way to have your connection be a physical one as well as to just go to the water and I'll go to the water and we'll be connected. Oh, it just, wow. That was great. <laughs> I think I have no more words now. Um, <laughs> my grandparents are both in residential school. My cookum was in residential school uh, in Whitefish First Nations and my mushroom was in residential school in, uh, in Gruart, Capuino. So Capuino is actually just like 45 minutes, half an hour from me where the school was. There's, the school is no longer there. But I think it took me a, a long time to even recognize or understand the impact of that. He talked about it often, but I, I don't think I ever really put those, the distance. Oh, this was Gruard that was just in my backyard. This was the school he was talking about. That's where he ran away from, right? So that was <laughs> when, I, when I came to that realization, um, I was like, wow. And then it really struck me in a different way. And it made me think in a different way about my upbringing. Uh, my cookum would have went to residential schools at quite a young age in Whitefish. She was First Nations. Uh, my mushroom was, was Métis. So I'm Métis. She would have learned sewing, cooking, praying, things like that. So those things that when they had children, a lot of our traditions were not passed down. My cookum and mushroom, my mushroom was very much a carpenter, a farmer, and even my community is a farming community. Uh, We're a Métis community, but we're farmers. The whole community, pretty much the entire community is farmers. (laughs) We weren't taught our traditional things because they were always 
it was bad to be an Indian. It was bad to be dark-skinned. It was bad to be indigenous. So we weren't taught those traditional things. But my cookum always, we always did things off the land. We always harvested from the land. We always picked berries. She didn't necessarily pick medicines, but we did always do those other traditions, hunting, fishing, harvesting from the land in other ways that we can use in our homes. So that's how I was taught. So then when the formal education came in, that was really important that we were educated in a way because of colonization, we had to, to so we could function in the world, that my, my parents could function in the world. My aunts and uncles can function in the world in a way that was a good way and to be successful. My mushroom and cookum knew that it was important for them as indigenous women, especially the women, the, the men, the brothers didn't, were pushed, but the women were pushed to, to get an education. This The girls were, you had to have, right? Because they we knew as an indigenous woman, it's, it's hard, even in today's age. I work provincially, so I travel the world. I travel Alberta as an indigenous woman, a very, very, very dark indigenous woman. Uh, I look very indigenous and I'm often by myself. So it's even, even the world itself treats us differently. So education, especially for indigenous people is important. We have to have an education. We need, not have to, we need to have an education as indigenous people. And we need to have the same level of as education as our non-indigenous counterparts in order to be heard in today's world for several, several years and years and years and years and years. And the Indigenous people that went to the residential schools spoke, we, there's, there's, we have our children are missing. There's bodies buried there. These things need to be found. And then finally, somebody said, oh, you're right. We better check. And now we know this is, this is the truth. But it had to be scientifically proven. It couldn't just be our stories and our words and our knowledge. I don't know when that'll happen, when it's just accepted. We talk about truth and reconciliation. And right now, we're in the truth telling and the truth telling is going to take a long time. It's taken hundreds and thousands of years to hear the truth. So it's going to take us a long time before we can start reconciliation. And part of reconciliation is education, educating what happened, the true history uh, of, of the indigenous people from their words, from yes. their, their voices, from their people and what that looks like and what actually what happened to them. And in a way that's not always hard. It is hard to hear, but it's hard to say, but it's important to say, and yeah. it's important to hear, and it's important to, to hear with your heart. From the point of view of someone who had no idea that residential schools were what they were, mm -hmm. um, like you said, weaponized, how education was weaponized. That was a very poignant point because it was and it wasn't even education that was happening in those buildings it was preparing for sewing and cleaning and cooking it or I and I'm I don't know all of the history but it wasn't teaching math and English and social studies and science which is maybe what other people thought was happening in there and so just even coming from the perspective of I didn't know that that was going on at all and then to find out all of these things that have happened, I, as someone who is not Indigenous, but would like to be an ally, would like to do all of the right things, sometimes I'm at a loss because I don't even know where to start because there, it's just such a huge thing, right? And I want to do something positive, mm -hmm. but... There's so much history that is so negative. And then you're like, well, how do I, how do I help? So maybe mm -hmm. that's a question for you. How can we non-Indigenous people help get to truth and reconciliation, knowing that it's going to be a long road? Yeah, I think, I think first of all is anyone that wants to know or wants or recognizes in themselves that I want to know more. That's a great start. And that's your first step. You've recognized something in yourself that, okay, I need to learn more because this is, doesn't feel right for whatever reason, or I want to know whatever the reason is. I want yeah. to know more. I think that's always the first step. And I think for anyone that's wanting to know more, the first thing that you can do is look at where you are today. 
in your community, the land that you live on. This land that for me, I know the land that I live on. This is this, I live on a Metis settlement. I know that my Metis settlement was formed in 1939. I know the first family, I know the first family that settled here. I know the history of my land. And I think that's first of all is the most important. And one of the not necessarily easier ways to start, but I think it's the most important place to start because all this land that we're on, it's all connected. This is how I talked about earlier. The land is connected. We're all connected. People that where I live right now, there's people that were here probably a hundred years before. I don't know. I definitely know that uh, where I lived, not far from me, there's a river. And that's where people first settled when they came here. Was it to that area? And then there's some little islands and things that they settled on also. And then as the community actually became an official community, people went, went kind of way far. Like they're like, I don't know why they went so far, but they're way far north of the bush. <laughs> I, I'm right on the border, like the front border, I guess. I don't know how to describe it, the front border of my community. But there's people that live like 70 kilometers into the community that are way at the other end. And so for me, just knowing who was in that land first. And I could go quadding around in the areas and, oh, this is where so-and-so had a had a mill when they first settled here in the 20s before we became a community, right? So those, it's really just knowing the land. I think that's a really good place to start. Who was on this land before I came here? Who was the stewards of this land? Was it the Cree? Was it the Dene? Was it the Blackfoot? You know, was it a different Indigenous tribe that we don't know their name? You know, it's, it, I think it's important to understand that. And I think once we understand who was the land stewards of this land or who came before us, and then we could know who they are as a people, what they did as a people, and then we could have understanding of them. And I think that's the most important thing is, is to not, not necessarily know our history, but to know who came before us, who they were, because they were people. They were yeah. humans, they had flesh and blood like we, they had families, they had connections. And we're now connected to them because we're in that same place. And I think that's the way, that's where someone can start. And if you're not sure, you can go to your local library. You can go to your local church that have baptism records of families that were in the area. Your town, if you live in a town. There's archives that you can go to if you're in the Edmonton area. There's all kinds of places where you can find that information. You can go talk to local community members, that, like older people in the community. I always talk to my elders here. Anytime I want to do anything, I build relationship with elders. And it takes several years to build relationships. And now, after several years, I now do trading and bartering with some of my elders because of building those relationships and having an understanding of their needs and me wanting to harvest things from the land. And as the elders get, are getting older, they're harvesting hard. Some things are harder for them to harvest. So lots of times I'll talk to them, what do you need? And I'll go harvest for them. And then we do a barter or trade for something. So really working in those ways. I would rather barter and trade for something than give somebody monetary dollar amount. And I think it's just a more communal way of living. So I think, again, if you want to be an ally with Indigenous people is really understanding who the people were of the land. And then also understanding, having an understanding about Indigenous kinship. I think that's also important to understand if you want to be an ally. If you have an Indigenous person working in your organization and they seem to leave a lot or there's lots, they have lots of funerals or there's lots of things happening, they have to go and harvest at certain times of the year. If you have a, a learner or a that comes into your kelp and then they disappear, like even <laughs> it's because of their culture, like things that happen within their culture. Like there's like all year round, you start harvesting as soon as the snow melts, there's stuff that you can start harvesting. You can start harvesting birch water from the birch trees. You can start, and then as that flows and that melts, and then you then becomes the spruce tips and then you can take the little baby spruce tips and they're so delicious. <laughs> and then after the spruce tips, now we're in, into wild roses. So I'm harvesting wild rose petals now to make different things and teas. And so it just continues, right? And it's all through the land and there's all, always we follow the moon phases so there's so many things but I'm, I'm getting off track but talking about literacy and allyship <laughs> no it makes total sense and then as you learn all of these things you're able to then understand and I think with the whole idea of kinship it's not necessarily always doing the harvesting for yourself but you're doing it for your community or you're doing it for 
a variety of people or reasons, um, mm -hmm. which of course, then they would need to be able to go and harvest because it's for mm -hmm. everyone, right? Like it's absolutely. I also liked how you said that you prefer bartering to monetary. And as you said that, I was like, of course you would, because there's effort involved. Monetary is easy, but if you go and mm -hmm. harvest, you've put that effort in and it means more, right? Mm -hmm. So then that gift that you're giving has, it has more weight or more substance. Absolutely. And I think too, just going back to kinship and being an ally with Indigenous people, you have to understand our kinship is well, it's extended. So my mom's siblings would be like my mom and dad's in our in Indigenous relationship. Any of my cousins that are under the age of, I'm going to age myself, any of my cousins that are under the age of 35, <laughs> so they're not that much younger than me, but they are younger than me, <laughs> all call me auntie. And I was actually an only child up until 18 years ago, but I'm, I've been an auntie for most of my life. So, uh, and, and it's their children that also call me auntie. And that's our Indigenous way of being. I will always, I was raised I was almost raised with my mom and her siblings as part of, you know, I don't call them aunt and uncle, like my uncle, but my children do. Um, so it's just interesting that way. And, and so our kinship extends to not only our, when we think of our family, it's not only our mom and our dad and our brother and sister. Our kinship is, my cousins are like my brothers and sisters. You know, they're, they are. Yeah. So it's, and so it's important to understand that if you're working with Indigenous people, we come together in group. <laughs> if you want to work with an Indigenous learner, invite their family members along with them. Uh, oh, that's the, we, we feel safer as Indigenous people. You have to remember, it's not a good, it hasn't been a good place for Indigenous people in the world for a long time. So we're safer in groups. We're safer if we bring someone with us. And so it's important if you're going to offer any type of learning opportunity or if you want Indigenous people to come to your events or programs, to make it okay that they bring someone with them. And to invite them specifically to say, bring your mom, bring your dad, bring your cousin, bring your auntie. You know, those things are, are important to be said because then it's going to open up more doors. You're going to take down barriers. You're going to take down so many things that, that may be holding that Indigenous person back. To going through your door. I think another thing that's really important to remember, I was always taught, and I still practice this, and I think most Indigenous people do, as soon as someone comes into your home, you offer them refreshments. You ask them, and even in some cultures, I've just learned this recently, that they don't say hello, they ask you, have you eaten yet? And that makes so much sense, right? It's like, yeah, <laughs> you're supposed to do that. That tells <laughs> how you are. Normal that yeah, right. <laughs> if you haven't eaten, then you need to eat, right? That's the, then we can have our visit and our conversation because, the, and then we'll be all happy, right? So I think it's important to uh, to understand those things too, kinship and just relationship building with Indigenous people, and then it takes time. That's another thing too. It takes time. If you're trying to or wanting to work with an Indigenous organization, and maybe you're emailing them. You're not having success with emails. Well, maybe try a phone call, right? Are you, maybe you're not connecting with the right person who you thought you needed to connect with. You know, there there can be other things going on, or or maybe that community is having a crisis and they're not answering emails right now, um, or they're not answering phone calls right now. You know, there could be there could have been a death in the community. When there's a death in my community, the whole entire community shuts down. Our administration buildings it's shut down for however many days that are needed. And then once the funeral and things are over, then we open up again. So it's important to understand that as Indigenous organizations and Indigenous communities, we work differently than the rest of the world because of our kinship and because of our communal values. To be an ally, I think part of those is understanding those types of things. And it's really, I think, another thing, too, is the importance of seeking out information in a good way. And joining different things, like the CALP offers some different programs or workshops. I myself, if you're in the CALP world, I offer an Ask Us Anything About Métis and Indigenous Worldview. 
it's a very safe place. I call it a safe place. I feel that the people that come to the circle find it safe and they ask questions, any questions that they like to learn about Indigenous people. And it's a way for them to ask, to ask their questions without them having to put a lot of weight on their questions or to be heavy or to be feel silly about asking those questions because the space is created for those questions. <laughs> Seeking out information in good ways seeking out people of knowledge in good ways, but also understanding that when you're seeking out elders, especially when you're seeking out elders right now in today's world, a lot of our Indigenous communities are ground-truthing our residential schools. So if you're seeking out elders, be aware of that, that elder is most likely a residential school survivor. My grandparents, I'm here because my grandparents on both sides survived residential school. And those things are hard. And a lot of people are dealing with them, are not dealing with them, are trying to understand the impacts on themselves and their homes and their communities and how they were raised. I was very fortunate. My grandparents came out of residential school and my cookum, she loved her God and she was a community helper. Whenever a baby was born in the community, that baby would have a blanket that she made. If a family in the community that we knew of was having a hard time, a basket would mag magically appear on their doorstep of goods and that they would have needed. And that was her, but that was again, uh, being communal, knowing the community and just being part of the community in a way that she could be. I take a lot of that she's done and I and, and into, into my own self and the things that, that I do and the work that I do. Then part of that is educating non-Indigenous people about Indigenous people. And that's really the work that I do is having conversations like we're having today about what that yeah. means and what that looks like. Yeah. And I'm very fortunate. I always think I'm fortunate in the work that I do. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, hi. <laughs> I, I only went to one of your ask, ask an elder question. Ask, ask us anything about Métis and Indigenous worldview. Got well, a big title. <laughs> it, was a, it was a good title. And I wasn't really sure what that was when I saw it the first couple times. And I really appreciated that you invited me to it because I think that sort of a safe space is something that is very needed for non-Indigenous people to just have that space to learn without feeling like they're, I would say from my point of view, being dumb. Like, I feel like there's lots of things I should just know and I don't. And so mm -hmm. it was nice to have a place where I could go and I asked my question, but I also found out all of this other information from everyone else's questions that I hadn't even thought of. And so that was mm -hmm. such an amazing space. And I've told everyone here at PALS that they have to go in the fall because it was just such a great way to learn, but also to be able to ask the question without worrying and just mm -hmm. asking, which is lovely. Right. And it was a space because not all Indigenous people were raised in culture. Not all Indigenous people were raised in tradition. Not all Indigenous people know their language. And a lot of them are, a lot of people are now only discovering that, yeah, I am Indigenous. I thought I was. I kind of had, there was kind of some things around the home that said we were, but it was never brought out because it was not good to be Indigenous, right? And as we're learning and growing, we want to identify with those things. We want, oh, I am Indigenous. That's that's a good thing now, right? So yeah. it's important. It's still not always a good thing. I still face a lot of racism. All the, Whenever I leave my community, I, I can face racism in different ways. And that's normal. And I think that we just live our lives that way. It's quite interesting. My daughter is very fair. So she could pass as not Indigenous. And my son is very, he's dark. He's dark like me. And so with my daughter, because of her light skin, can be treated and has been treated differently than me because of my dark skin in different communities. So even though how far we're progressing, there's still a lot of racism out there. There's still, it's still dealt with. And it doesn't matter what you look like. What I mean is by what you look like is I always dress tidy. I make sure I dress tidy when I go out in the world because I know I'm Indigenous and I know how I'm viewed. So there's things I think that we don't think about or that people don't think about what it's like to be Indigenous in the world today. And for me, like I said earlier, I travel across Alberta, 
before I go into any community, I ask people, other Indigenous people, is this a place for Indigenous, is this a safe place for Indigenous people? And then that, that then determines how I behave in that community. Do I go around to the local parks, like, like the outdoor parks, and I can go walk around there, will I be safe in that way? These are things I have to think about as an Indigenous person in the world. Wow. Um, and it's not, it's like I said, it's not always good to be Indigenous. It's good to be Indigenous in my community because I'm with other Indigenous people. Um, it's good to be Indigenous in the work that I do because I'm sought out for the work that I do in the, in, in the kelp system. Um, it's just sometimes communities are not friendly and that's across Alberta and across Canada. It is, that's not, not just, I've been fortunate that I've done work in other provinces. I've spent a lot of time in other provinces. So I can say that in a way that I know is true. It's true to my, my way of knowing the world as it is. It's, it's um that's a hard hard thing to hear for me that you have to check before you go yeah I'm unfortunately not surprised because I have lived in the world um but I don't that's awful mm -hmm. and I think so when we see Indigenous people, we have to remember all these things I talked about, right? Residential schools. And that was, and we didn't really even talk about residential schools. Like even just when reserves and treaties were made, like you go back that, like that's that's really where it started or where yeah. it, it's where the beginnings was. We're gonna take all these these indigenous people that just were free and and all over Canada. And no, we're gonna put you on this little piece of land where you might or might not have resources that you'd need that you normally would live by for fishing and hunting, your berry picking and harvesting spots and medicine spots. And we're gonna put you there and you're not allowed to leave there. You're only allowed to leave if I give you a piece of paper that says you can go and you can go for this long, but you gotta be back in this, this amount of time. If you're caught outside your reserve without that paper, you're going to jail. So there's a lot of things that as indigenous people, and it came from a long line. So that's why we talk about seven, the seven generations of healing, right? It, got, it, it will yeah. take seven generations. And my grandparents started healing. So I would be, so my grandparents, my parents, and then me. So I'm third generation. I'm not being in residential schools. My children is fourth. My grandson, my grandchildren's are fifth, right? So that's only, we're not even there yet. You know, like my yeah. grandchildren are years old and eight months old so <laughs> so it's a long time before we see before we hope to see the reconciliation because again like we're just now this is the generation where we're hearing the truth so how many more generations before we're going to reconcile yeah for sure yeah, it's just yeah so I think that again when working with Indigenous people there's a lot of things to consider not all Indigenous people have came from a home that was an unhealthy home. I came from a very healthy home. I was very fortunate. My grandparents were very much were healthy after they left residential school. They, they were able to be healthy people. Not everyone is and not everyone was. And then we had things like the 60s scoop and things like that, right? So there's so much things that happened within just people. It's still happening in just a different way. It's not as we know a little better. I think the world knows a little better. And we're trying to learn and work with Indigenous people and just really have conversations like this. And, and it helps to be like conversations like this builds allies. It, it does, absolutely. Having knowledge or learning knowledge about their Indigenous people in your community. And even if there's no Indigenous people in your community, why is there no Indigenous people in your community? Yeah, exactly. Like that's another question too, right? Yeah. I hear that often. Like, oh, there's no Indigenous people here. Well, there probably was at one time, and there's probably a reason why they're not there. Because <laughs> so, we are everywhere. And there are yeah. invisible indigenous people. Like my, like I said, my daughter is very fair-skinned. So she would be considered an invisible indigenous person. Right. So yeah, I think that's important to also remember. We don't all look. We're modern indigenous people now. I like to use that. That's my my term for this year. Modern indigenous people. <laughs> nice. May I ask you about the paintings that are behind you? 
Oh, <laughs> yes. Did, you, did uh, you paint them? Yes, those are all mine. Um, I do, I do a little, I do different things. I paint, I woodwork, I do a little bit of sewing and crocheting and just kind of, like I said, I do different crafts. I harvest, but yeah, those are all mine. And, and the ones with the red are actually representative of the Métis sash. Uh, I'm Métis. So, and, and every painting that I do, um, it always has a sash in it of some kind. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. They're gorgeous. Thank you. Just the colors that you're using. And I love the wolf. I can see that very distinctly from my angle there. Just beautiful. Yeah. I also like Thank the Yoda. <laughs> Are you going to throw something in there? <laughs> Baby Yoda. And he does have a little sash, a little sash pin on him. Aww, <laughs> you wouldn't be able to see it. <laughs> That's just my way of I'm I'm Métis and I'm I have a very strong sense of, of being a Métis person. Uh, I get to actually get kind of offended. I do get offended. I shouldn't say kind of uh, when somebody asks like uh, ask me for my treaty card or or ask me if I'm tax exempt or just like mm, I'm Métis. <laughs> Thanks though. <laughs> so, wow. And it's just a, I think it's just bringing an understanding that we all come in different shades. Right. Yeah. And then that's okay. <laughs> so. Yeah, for sure. And even though we come in different shades, we should all be equal. And eventually, I hope that that comes, there comes a time where you don't have to phone the community first and that no one asks you questions like that. Yeah. That's one day. Yeah. At <laughs> least seven generations. Way. That's right. Yes. And that's what I like. I was thinking about this the other day about what, what is reconciliation and, and will my grandchildren that are born right now, well, when they're old enough, when they're my age, will you be starting reconciliation then? Or will we, are we going to still be telling the truth? Like that's something that I think about often. And I think about my little, my little, uh, Newsom is Cree, uh, so grandson, uh, grandchild Newsom. Uh, I think about them, and I think about they're very, they're both very fair. They both have blonde hair, and uh, but they have my eyes. They have very dark, dark black eyes. So you can see that they're indigenous in that way. But for them to venture in the world, and because they don't look indigenous, they may have a hard time being accepted in indigenous circles, and that's my fear for them because they look so fair, they may hear hard things about Indigenous people. That's another thing that makes my heart sad because of the world that we, like I have friends that look very non-Indigenous. They can pass as non-Indigenous and they work in organizations that may not necessarily always be friendly or say the proper things about Indigenous people. So then they hear these things because they don't look Indigenous, right? Even then, people such as that have a choice to stand up and say something or do we let it go by and brush it off or do we just let it build up right so I think it's also important to to understand that because of the color of our skin doesn't necessarily make us who we are or or the world is not allowed to tell us who we are and I think yes. that's important to that people are allowed and able to self-identify as whoever they are uh, yeah. whether they're Indigenous or non-Indigenous, Métis or not. And that's why me, as a Métis woman, I'm very, it's very important to, that I'm recognized as a Métis woman. I'm not recognized as an Indigenous woman or a First Nations or a Treaty or Inuit. I am Métis and I'm very proud of Métis. And what that means to me may be different from what it means to somebody else. So I think it's important to, to recognize that. And it's also important to recognize that as Métis people, we have... We've had hard, we've even as a Métis people, we weren't accepted from our English side of our European side of our ancestry. And we weren't, we weren't always accepted from our Indigenous side of our ancestry. We really had to make our own way in the world. And we still are very much making our own way in the world. Alberta is the only province in Canada that has land-based, recognized land-based Métis settlements. No other province does. We're self we're self-identified Métis that have a land base, an actual land base 
there's no nowhere else in Canada that has that. So I think that's very special to us, even as Métis people. And to understand that there's a difference even between, you, you hear a lot about Métis nations. Métis nations are very different from that what, what where I live as a Métis settlement. We're not affiliated. We're, they're two different organizations. They're two different entities completely. And I think that's also important to understand. And then you have your First Nations and your bands. And they're different also from us as Métis people. We live on a Métis settlement. If you're First Nations, you live on a band or a reserve, right? And our rights are different as Métis and, and First Nations people. We have different rights. So there's lots of, I think it's even understanding those things. If you're wanting to be an ally is understanding yep. the land you come from, the land that you're on, the people that you're wanting to communicate with or be an ally to, understand their communities. And really understanding those people. I think all that also helps in allyship. And also if you're working with an Indigenous learner, or you have an Indigenous learner coming into your, your kelp or your organization, understanding them as a person, not just as this, like this whole pan-Indigenous person that you're putting in a pot, right? Last week, I don't know why, I was talking about rock soup a lot. And I think, and I've, like, if you know the story of rock soup, we have, we have a rock and we're going to make soup. And somebody, everybody's going to donate to this soup, right? I think if we think about our kelps or our organizations as rock soup, what are we putting in this soup? What are we putting in this pot? Who are we putting in this pot? Are we putting in them as, as we see them? Or, or are they putting in themselves as they see themselves? And I think that's important to understand those things too. And what will the end result be of that super making, right? The yeah. ideas that we're putting in this pot, the, the people that we're putting in this pot. Is it, is, is it going to be a good tasting soup? Or is it going to be a terrible soup? Because we didn't listen to any of the people that we put in the pot. <laughs> right? Yeah, that definitely happens where it depends on if you're putting in who you have decided or who they think they are or truly want to be even can be totally different people and I think having that ability to let people enter as who they are and maybe with who they want to be as well or what mm -hmm. their goals are and heading towards whichever path that they want to take and we're just on the way to help them to get to that goal and to get to that path yeah. that's kind of how I see our helps in general Absolutely. I see kelps just in general, like the, the system itself. I, I, I always go back to that forest because I'm, I'm very connected to the land. So I always talk about the land and the trees and the <laughs> animals when I talk about anything. And, and I think, again, um, is how does that flourish? How do we how do we work together if you work communally? And I, I think that's what it is. It's just really communal working. I'm curious if there is land-based learning or there is more even learning on the land makes a huge difference for learners do you see that kind of being incorporated into kelps or do you see any kelps using the land to engage the indigenous communities i am i couldn't say specifically but i would definitely say that I see kelps or I hear of kelps that are not necessarily doing land-based teachings, but they're going out in the land, meeting the learner where they're comfortable. And I think COVID had a lot to do with that too, right? People were meeting outdoors, yeah. people were, were using different spaces to meet. And I think that's I think that's kind of what I'm seeing now. And then with the weather happening, doing more things, getting away from that desk, right? Going outside. Yeah. I think that's so even just being outside in nature, like I have a, um, so for me, just being outside. So I travel for work and I live alone. So what I find like being on the land, I talked about earlier about sitting in front of a desk. If I'm in front of a desk all day, I actually have to go outside, refresh myself, restart, restart my brain, restart my head, go for a walk, go touch a tree, even just I find if I travel and I'm around a lot of people, like I go to like meetings and things like that. So one of the things, and it may sound funny and weird, I come home and I literally just go lay face down on the front yard, just breathe and just wait until, and I just lay there. The dog has no idea what I'm doing. He's wonderful though. <laughs> He's, he just comes, lays beside me 
kind of puts a paw, checks if I'm okay, and then he just he's okay. Then he'll just lay there calmly until I'm done, just laying there in the grass. And it's really just nature has such a way of being that you can just be. And for me, anytime anything's happening in the world, I go in the bush, I go to a tree. If I'm not, if I'm in a city, I'll go find a tree. I'll go find some grass. And it's just touching that and being connected there because nature's, nature's been there. She's been there forever, right? She knows, she's seen all the, how the world has changed and everything that's happened in the world. But the one thing that stays the same, she's always been there. She's there for you. She's there for me. And she'll reset us. We're made of water. We're made, anything that we use or do is comes from nature. And I think it's remembering that. Even with our modern things, our computers and laptops, they came from some part of nature, right? They, there's some, something from nature came into make, to the making of those. And just having that connection, again, back to the green, to the outside. Even in the rain, the rain, rain is healing, right? It, it washes away the, the things that are dusty, washes away the dust. It takes away the cobwebs. It brings freshness and brings yeah. growth, right? So I think when we talk about land-based learning, what I see is people want to do very traditional and oral, like the story that I told this morning or the first part of our time together was about the tree and the soil, right? So that was just, I wasn't necessarily going out thinking, oh, I'm going to teach my daughter a lesson. This We were going out to plant this berry bush, right? <laughs> this blueberry right. tree. And, and the lesson just came with the land and what we were doing, right? It was an, it was an opportunity to teach. So I think land-based learning could be different things. They could look different ways. I can be very intentional and I'm going to go, we're going to go pick some berries today, or we're going to go pick some medicines. And so we have, there's teachings that would go along with that. Maybe there's some tobacco teachings. Maybe there's, you know, we're, we're going to talk about how to harvest or when we harvest because there's certain times of the moon, we call it different moons. Like uh, I'm wearing, I'm wearing beaded berry earrings, today. strawberry earrings today, because we just had the strawberry moon. So the strawberry moon is, and then if you go outside, you'll, you'll see any wild strawberries are starting to bloom. So wherever you see those blooms, that's where we're going to have a strawberry. So each, so even, so those are different, those are different land-based teachings, but you can just go on, on the land and have a lesson in the land. You can go in, if you're a kelp practitioner and you're going to do numeracy that day, you could do numeracy on the land. You could go find a tree. Well, let's go, whatever that is. So does that make it land-based learning? I believe it does. I believe if we're in nature, we're doing land-based le learning sometimes because those things can naturally happen. Yeah. You just have to look for them or, or, to, or to understand and interpret what's happening. And the only way you're going to do that is by being out in the world and being out in nature and observing nature. I observe nature all year round. I observe my land all year round. I walk around my property every day and I discover new things that I didn't see before oh there's a new berry bush there oh where did you come from like you weren't there last year it's like or were you and I just didn't see you right like so things like that it's these wonderful surprises that you don't know but until you looking uh or harvesting then then you won't recognize those things so I think it's opening our eyes away and opening our eyes in different ways opening our thoughts about learning in different ways and really, really trying to say what it is that we need as a whole person in order for us to learn. Uh, when we have learners coming into our, into our kelp, what is it? We look at that whole person. Just like when we dug in that ground, we were just digging in that ground, but we then a lesson came out of it. So again, like it just, whatever we're doing, in whatever way we're doing it, whatever we're wanting to learn, we have to understand who the learner is, who we are. Because like we also have, if we're trying to help someone or guide someone in learning and helping, like assisting them in whatever way that is, we have to look at ourselves even and look at what bias we have. So maybe you're working with oh, an Indigenous sure. learner and you're assuming, oh, this Indigenous learner probably have you know they know their language they know their community they know their history they know their culture we're putting these assumptions on them 
But because of residential schools, colonization, the 60s scoop, there's probably a really good chance that this Indigenous person doesn't know those things. And then so when we're wanting to know Indigenous things or learn from Indigenous elders, it's very important that we're seeking out knowledge in a good way and we're asking the right people. And it's not necessarily asking, I guess I shouldn't say we're asking the right people. It's knowing our communities in a different way instead of depending on, on others or our neighbor. Our neighbor should know. Well, they should know. Well, why don't we know, right? Why don't we, why aren't we discovering these things? And I'm guilty of that too. Like I talked about earlier about the my mushroom going to residential school and not even, even though I've heard these stories, my growing up, him running away, he talked about different things. I never put two and two together that this was the residential school in my backyard that he was talking about until they started, until the 215 children were discovered. And then I really, then it really put my brain as like, oh, why didn't I recognize that? And I'm an Indigenous person knowing that my grandparents went to residential school. So when I hear non-Indigenous people saying we should have known, it's not that we should have known. I think that we, we didn't know to know is what it is. And, and we have to forgive ourselves for not knowing. Yeah. And that's important. Like they think it's so important. Um, and I think too, is, as, we, as we learn more and we ask more questions, we're gonna stumble. We're all gonna stumble. And it doesn't always feel good. I think that's important to remember too. And it's, it's, it's not gonna always feel good, but it's important to say things that aren't, that are, are or have those hard conversations, it's important to do those things. I have, um, in the work that I do regularly within the kelp system, I have a lot of hard conversations. I have a lot of teaching moments, talking about different ways of knowing Indigenous things, talking about residential schools, talking about um, just being Indigenous in the world, right? Like there's, there's a lot yeah. of things that I think as people, we come, we all know that we have different things, but I think when we specifically think about Indigenous people, we have to think about all these other things that these Indigenous people come with, or they can come with. Yeah. Uh, it's not necessarily that they all come with these things, but they can come with these things, and it's important to understand that and why there why there's certain things like, like that. So by creating spaces where we want Indigenous people to come, um, inviting their kinship is important, understanding the community. Um, taking away those bias of that community. Yeah. I think a lot of people too have fear of going into a reservation or an Indigenous community because of the unknowns, right? Because we hear, we always hear these back, these things in the back of our heads and we probably heard them growing up or heard other people talking that it's not, those are not good or it's scary there or they're bad there. Or there's things there that are not Good, but not all things are like that. Like I know when people come to my community to to Peavine, they're quite surprised because, like I said, we're a farming community. We're very different from what you would think would be an indigenous community. We're farmers. We're, that's what we are. Farmers and a lot of oil field activity now, but mostly farmers, and that's that was who first settled here. And my community too is quite unique. So I'm in Peavine Métis settlement. We border Gift Lake Métis Settlement. So at one time, Gift Lake and Peavine were, were one community. Okay. Um, the powers that be decided we should be two communities. And they so we border. So we border each other. And we're very close border. Um, so Gift Lake Métis Settlement, the community itself, uh, most of the community that I, I can say that I see, I, uh, I could be wrong. Somebody from Gift Lake may say, no, you're wrong, Lori. But from what I see <laughs> as my neighbor, <laughs> Uh, most of them speak their language, like sp speak Cree. You have the little tiny babies going around speaking Cree. It's very common for them that they speak Cree there. In my community, uh, there's very few Cree speakers. I myself, uh, as a young person, I knew Cree. Cree was spoken in the home. My language was spoken in the home. But as an adult, I don't. I can't speak Cree. I'm now. I'm relearning my language. I'm pretty sure it was my first language too. I don't know that for sure, but I want to say it was. Cree was my first language. And I don't speak it now. I can understand a lot of it, but I don't speak it. So we have two Métis settlements side by side. They border each other. We live different, very, very differently. So I think that it's important to understand 
even though we're both Métis settlements, we're both Métis people, we have different communities. We have different thoughts of our communities. Our communities have grown in different ways. Our communities have prospered in different ways. We have different ways of knowing and we have different ways of being in those communities. So I think that's a lesson I was trying to share was yes. that even though Indigenous communities are Indigenous communities, we're each unique in our own ways of knowing and being, just like our, us as people, as Indigenous people, we're, we're also unique in our own ways of, of being in the world, of our understanding of the world. Um, and it's important to recognize and, and know those things. So it's really, again, goes back to relationship building. It's always, we'll always go back to relationship building, back to kinship, and look at, and, and, and taking all those things in, in, into consideration when we're wanting to know more about Indigenous people, uh, communities, or learners. And again, going back to that tree, that berry bush, <laughs> right? It always goes back to the ground. What are yeah. we working with? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Giving I think that that's what up. it is. Yeah, and that's what it is. It's a hand up. It's, it's, it's always a hand up. And I always think that um, anything that I do as an Indigenous person, I want to raise other Indigenous people along with me. I want to raise their voice higher than my voice their voice is more important than me. I'm just one person. I want to know all these other Indigenous people around me and what, what's important to them. Because their voice is more important than my voice and they should be raised. And that's how I think, um, that's how I feel I live um, yeah. in my community and how I feel in the work that I do. It's important for me to raise the Indigenous voices in the system and the kelp system. Uh, and the Indigenous voices in community and just Indigenous voices in the world. It's important to understand the diversity of Indigenous people. Um, it's important to understand that Indigenous people are strong and resilient. Yes. It's important to understand that Indigenous people will continue to be here in our way that we choose, in our modernized, as, as modern Indigenous people. And that we're, we ourselves, a lot of us ourselves, are learning about our own culture, our own traditions, and our own history, because we were not allowed to know about these things. We're not, we weren't allowed to be Indigenous. We weren't allowed to be Métis. We weren't allowed to be Treaty people. Um, so now we're learning those things and we're taking back our power in those ways. And it's in, in order for us to shine and to, be, to take back our own human, humanness in our own way, it's important to have allies, such as you, Erin. It's important to have allies that want to learn more, that want to share Indigenous voices, that want to raise Indigenous people in a good way. And it's also important that when we look at Indigenous people, or we speak about Indigenous people, the examples that we use about speaking about Indigenous people, we always use good examples. We, we put a, the light that we're shedding on Indigenous people is also very important to me. When sharing an example of an Indigenous community, I'll always speak of the good things because those are the things that need to shine. We've had enough of the spotlight of the bad things about Indigenous people or the biases or the racisms. So let's shine the light on all the good things that we see in Indigenous people. And let's continue to shine the light on those things and dim the light on the, those other things that, that, that don't no longer deserve to have light. Yes. Mm -hmm. Hi, hi. Hi, hi. This podcast was recorded on Treaty 6 territory. We respect the First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and all the First Peoples of Canada, whose presence continues to enrich the community.